0: Good to see all of you here this morning. If you've got your Bible with you, let's go to the book of Genesis as we have been doing for two years now. <laughs> we're on the home stretch. <laughs> go to Genesis with me if you will. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's probably a Bible in one of the chair racks there in front of you that you can follow along with us. Uh, some of the key passages that we're going to be reading will be in uh, on the screen behind me, uh, but we want you to be able to follow along. Uh, with us as we work our way through the chapters of Scripture that we're going to be talking about today. And if you are new to the whole church thing and new to the whole Bible thing, then we welcome you here. Uh, We love it that we have each week people with us that don't know where to find things in the Bible. And we hope that if you spend time with us, you will become more familiar not only with where to find things in the Bible, but the God of the Bible who has revealed himself to us and speaks to us Through his word. Genesis is the very first book of the Bible. And so if you work your way forward, we're going to be in chapter 42. We're going to start off in chapter 42 today. If you've ever flown before, then you know that all of the out of all the many frustrating experiences of flying, one of the most frustrating aspects of flying is what to do with your baggage you have two options with your baggage, neither of which are good. The first is that immediately upon stepping out of the car, you can check your baggage with the person at the gate outside the airport. This has the advantage of you not having to carry your baggage through the airport, but it has the disadvantage of not having access to anything that you may have left in that bag. And it has the disadvantage that it may or may not arrive with you at your destination. And when it does arrive at your destination, sometimes at the end of your time there, it will appear to have been dropped from the airplane at 20,000 feet to be returned to you. There's another option. You can carry on that bag. The carry-on has the advantage of you having all of these items immediately accessible to you so that you do not have to let them out of your sight. It tends to weigh less. But, of course, you're going to have that carry-on dissected in front of the entire world as you go through uh, the security process. And you're going to have to carry that carry-on throughout the entire airport, everywhere you go, everything you do, bumping into everybody's knees and rolling over everybody's feet around you. We carry guilt with us like baggage as we work through our lives together. In fact, many of you brought it in here with you this morning. You may not have actually rolled a physical carry-on filled with your guilt, but you might as well have. It's parked under your seat because you take it with you everywhere you go. And it has become so much a part of your life, wheeling this guilt with you everywhere you go. It has become so much a, a part of your routine, has become so much a part of your existence that you have actually forgotten that you bring it with you. It has become invisible to you, but it is there. You wield it in here. You pull your guilt behind, bumping into everyone as you make your way down the aisle. Others of you have checked your guilt at the counter where it feels inaccessible to you, but you have this feeling of dread knowing that eventually, at some point, you're going to be reunited with it. And when you are reunited with it, it is going to be heavy. Guilt is one of the main characters in the story that we're going to be considering together today. We have been considering all kinds of pretty significant characters as we have worked our way through Genesis. Guilt is one of the largest here in, verses, or in chapters 42 through 45 that we're going to be looking at over the next couple of weeks. And I'll, I'll just tell you, I really wrestled with the best way to break up this story because this, uh, this cycle of this part of the story goes from chapter 42 all the way through chapter 45 and we don't usually bite off that big of a chunk of scripture and so I was trying to figure out whether I might tell the story in two chapters this week and two chapters next week but what I'm afraid of is that if we break the story up we're going to lose the impact of the story. So, what I decided to do is, I'm going to spend most of our time today telling you the story, working through the story, loading this story, which for some of us is very new, but for most of us is very, very familiar. And I want to try you to try to do your dead level best to read it as if you've never read it before, to ask God to help you to see it the way you've never seen it before, to let something that has become so familiar to you that you've forgotten about it, kind of like that guilt you carry with you. I want you to be able to see it again. And what we'll do at the end of our time today is we'll just draw one application from this story that's going to be the meditation that we take as we share the Lord's Supper together today. And then next week we'll review the story and talk about some more applications that we can draw from it. So. Where are we in Genesis? Well, at the end of chapter 41, that we left, when we left off last week, we saw that Joseph is now the second in command in Egypt. He's been paraded through the streets in Pharaoh's favorite chariot. He has had a group of people going before him telling everyone to bow the knee. And he has had a, an amazing reversal of fortunes. He has gone from slavery to prison to power. And God is using him to rescue not only Egypt, but but surrounding regions from a famine that is absolutely devastating the earth. And as chapter 42 opens, Jacob, Joseph's father, sends all of Joseph's brothers, with the exception of the youngest brother, Benjamin, to Egypt, because they are feeling the effects of the famine as well. And they have heard word has been circulated that Egypt has enough not only to supply their own needs but to meet the needs of the people around them. And so, when they arrive in Egypt, these brothers are brought before Joseph. Look with me, then, if you're there, in Genesis forty-two at verse eight. The Bible says this, and Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. That's a delicious setup. This is storytelling 101. This is masterful storytelling as we work our way through it. So what's going to happen in this situation where we as the readers know that Joseph recognizes them, But they don't recognize him, and one of the reasons they probably don't recognize him is because he is now more Egyptian than anything else. And he looks and walks, you might say, like an Egyptian. I'm sorry. I had, I could not help myself. I've had the song in my head. I thought about titling it that. I got it out of my system at the beginning, okay? Let me go. Verse 9. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? And he said to them, you are spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. Now, Joseph knows full well that they are not spies, nor have they come to spy out the vulnerabilities of Egypt but what joseph is is doing here is we're going to see as we work through this text is that he is setting up this elaborate test of his brothers and one of the thing that he one of the things that he is exploring in this is he wants to see if they have changed at all. He wants to see if there's any growth that has happened in these guys since they sold him into slavery now 22 years in the past. And so he begins this by accusing them of being spies just to, to introduce internal conflict and to see what they're going to do with it. And of course, they deny it because they are not, in fact, spies, which he well knows. And they explain to Joseph that they're actually they were twelve brothers, one of them, the youngest, they've left at home, and they say, and the other one is no more. Okay, another delicious little phrase in our text because they're, they're speaking to the one that is no more. In Verses 18 to 20, Joseph tells them he wants to verify their story. And so to prove that they're not spies, if they want to continue to, to buy and sell and trade with Egypt to meet their needs they're going to have to leave one of the brothers in custody and then when they return to buy grain again, they're going to have to verify the story they've come up with by bringing the youngest brother, Benjamin, with them. And here's where one of the main characters in our story surfaces. Remember, his name is Guilt. Look at verse 21. Then they said to one another, in truth... We are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. Remember I tried to get you to feel that scene as as Joseph is reaching out to his brothers and as as people are holding his arms back, as they're turning their backs on him, and he's receding into down the dusty road with that merchant caravan. He's begging them not to do what they're doing. And they did not listen. And at the end of verse 21, they say, that is why this distress has come upon us. Look how quickly that guilt comes rushing up to the surface. Here they are in Egypt, they've barely stood before uh, Joseph, they don't know it's Joseph for just a few moments. He started accusing them and the first thing they do is go back 22 years in their minds and say, I knew this was going to catch up with us. Verse 22, and Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? Remember, Reuben's the one that gave the half-hearted, guys, we shouldn't do this because he was going to come back and free him later. So now Reuben gets up onto his high horse and says, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy, but you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. Guilt has entered the chat. But here's the thing that's interesting. The text tells us they don't realize that Joseph... Can that he can understand them because he has been speaking to them through an interpreter this whole time. So he talks like an Egyptian as well. The brothers end up making the decision to leave Simeon in custody, and they prepare to make their journey back. But Joseph is now going to add another wrinkle into the test that he's giving them. And here's what he decides to do. He fills their bags with grain, and then he puts the money that they've used to purchase the grain back in the bags to be discovered later. And sure enough, they discover it as they're on their way back. Look at verse 28. He said to his brothers, these are the brothers talking among themselves My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them, and they turned, trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? Guilt. Again, it does not matter where they go. It does not matter what, where they are or what they do. They can't run from it. They make their way back home, and they tell their father, Jacob, everything that's happened, including the fact that if when this, when this, uh, this store of grain runs out, uh, we're going to have to go back and buy more. And by the way, we left Simeon there. <laughs> Poor Simeon. Just as an aside, I wonder how they decided to do all that. <laughs> Who, how did Simeon get it? But Simeon gets to stay behind permanently until they return or run out of grain. So they're talking through all of this with with their father. They're telling him that if they're going to go back, Benjamin's got to go with them this time. And they report the fact that they found their money in their bags, and now it looks like not only have they been dishonest, not only have they been accused of being spies, but now it looks like they've stolen the grain. So what are we going to do? Well, Jacob says, whatever you do, you're not going back with Benjamin. He says, I've lost Joseph, I've lost Simeon, I'm not going to lose Benjamin. But Reuben steps forward and he offers the lives of his own two sons if they don't bring Benjamin back with them. Once again, this is my strange mind, but I'm, I'm imagining that conversation, I'm imagining maybe the sons are there. And they're just kind of watching, and Reuben says, well, you can have my sons if we don't come back. And they're, what? <laughs> How do we get brought into this? But by chapter 43, they've run out of food again. And Jacob now is, has no choice but to send Benjamin back with them, and he realizes this. If they're going to, if they're going to eat, then Benjamin's got to go back. But here's where we start to see that Judah maybe has changed a little bit. Judah has been kind of singled out in Genesis as the worst among the brothers. The bad ideas are coming from him, the tempestuousness, the... The the willingness to easily kill, he's a liar, a manipulator, a hypocrite. He's all of these things. But now, surprisingly, we see Judas step forward because he pledges his own life for the safety of Benjamin to his father. So they talk about what they're going to do, and, and Jacob gives them more money, double the money, gives them the money that they were going to take. And he gives them all sorts of things that maybe could only be found in that area as a gift. And they all make their way back to Egypt. And they're worrying the whole time about the money. And when they get there, they're invited to dinner at Joseph's house, which is kind of weird. Because they're thinking, why Why would we be invited here? Certainly he doesn't invite everybody over for dinner. But they're worried about the money still, and so one of the things they do is they immediately tell the steward of the house, hey, we've got to get this out of the way. We found our money in our bags, so we brought the money back and double it for, for next time, and the steward assures them everything is okay, there's no problems. So they're eating dinner, and Joseph is asking about their father when he spots Benjamin. And the text tells us in verse 30 that, At this point, Joseph can no longer hold back the tears. And he runs to another room, and he weeps. And I just want you to imagine what's coming out in that that weeping. The feelings of hurt, all the things that he's lost, anger, betrayal, Some sort of strange gladness to see his brothers, someone that's familiar to him, to know that perhaps his father is okay. In chapter 44, Joseph tells the steward of his house to put their money in their bags again. And on top of that, he instructs them to put his silver cup in Benjamin's bag. And of course, This is not just any ordinary cup. This cup would have been something that was uniquely his. It would have been stealing, like stealing, a sense in which it would have been stealing a scepter from a pharaoh or a king. And so he has his silver cup placed in Benjamin's bag and is now setting up yet another test. He's going. To, I, I can only imagine he's trying to, to figure out if they're going to be willing to sell Benjamin out the way they sold him out. After all, Benjamin would have been the second favorite son because they both share the same mother, Jacob's favorite wife. So maybe they're just going to use this as an opportunity to throw Benjamin under the bus. So he lets them get a short distance away from the city, and when they're out a little bit, He sends his people after them to accuse them of theft. And the brothers know full well that they haven't stolen anything. And so they swear on their own lives. They say, you can check our bags. It's all right here. If if something is found in our bags that's stolen, you can put us to death. Again, we're building up the tension. This story just keeps ratcheting it up and ratcheting up and ratcheting up the tension. And so as they all open their bags, expecting to find nothing but grain in those bags, they see their money in those bags. And not only do they find their money in their bags, but we have a worst case scenario situation because the bag that has the cup in it is whose? Benjamin, of all people the one that they have pledged to bring back safe and sound, the cup is found in Benjamin's bag. And so this caravan turns back towards the city, now in custody. Joseph is asking them why they have returned evil for good. And Judah now steps forward as the spokesperson for the group. Look in chapter 44 and verse 16. And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. Now this is a very interesting statement here because he's talking about their guilt but they're not guilty right he's talking about something else they haven't stolen the money Benjamin hasn't stolen the cup He's standing before there, before Joseph now, talking about their apparent guilt, and he recognizes that there is nothing that he can do to defend himself. There's no way that they can go back to the security footage to figure out whether somebody else put the cup in Benjamin's sack, okay? They're they're done for. He's going to be able to do with them whatever they want, but their guilt is not related to their theft. Their guilt has been their constant companion these 22 years, and it has found them. Judah has changed, it appears. He offers himself in Benjamin's place because he says, I don't want my father to go down to his grave in grief. Now that's a far cry from the Judah from several chapters ago, who faked his own brother's death, quite willing to send his father in grief to the grave. Now we come to chapter 45. And at the beginning of chapter 45, the the scriptures tell us that Joseph can now no longer hold back his own grief. He sends everyone out of the room as quickly as he can, and he weeps so loudly that the Bible tells us everybody can hear. Have you experienced that kind of grief? Some of us have. Where the weeping is, is from such a deep place that it is, no, you are no longer able to hide it. It tells us the Egyptians in his household can hear him. But Joseph regains his composure. And in verse 3, he comes back into the room and says this. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? Now, they've told him his father's still alive. But now he's saying, level with me. Is it true? Is my father still alive? But the text tells us his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. That heavy bag of guilt that was checked, they're at their destination now. And they've been reunited with it. Their guilt now is so intense that the brothers are not able to even speak because they are certain that a reckoning is coming. But then Joseph does something. That doesn't make sense. Look at verse four. So Joseph said to his brothers, "Come near to me, please. He holds all the power down, all the cards. He can do with them whatever he chooses. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me here before you to preserve the famine has been in the land these two years. And there are yet five years. Remember, they don't know that. There are yet five years in which there will, neither be, there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So, to recap, it was not you who sent me here. But God, he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. That is powerful. What would you do with all that betrayal and all those years to think about and you having to answer to no one, no one can tell you that you can't and no one will know that you did, what would you do? On our best days, we might be able to push revenge to the side. But Joseph doesn't just not use this as an opportunity to get even. He uses it as an opportunity to bless. And not only does he bless, but he sends several Egyptian U-Hauls back with them to get their whole family and bring them into Egypt so that he can provide for their needs from the best of the land until the famine is over. Because he's got an interesting perspective on this. God sent me here. This is why I didn't feel like I'd break up the story if you look at it in, in bits and pieces, you lose the power. And this is an incredible story. Joseph will later say in chapter 50 that God meant it for good. We've seen that God uses things like betrayal, abandonment, even our own sinful choices for good as we've worked our way through this section. But this week and next, I want to consider this truth that God uses forgiveness for good. How? How does God use forgiveness for good? I'm going to point out three ways from this text that God uses forgiveness for good. And we'll look at part of the first one and the little bit of time we have remaining today. How does God use forgiveness for good? Number one, forgiveness frees us from guilt. Forgiveness frees us from guilt. As I was reflecting on this story for the past several weeks, I think that you might see these bags of grain that the brothers carry back and forth as a metaphor for their guilt. I don't know if I even use the correct English term for that, but whatever. They're symbolic of something. You can, you can fix whatever thing that it's supposed to be with me afterwards. But you see the bags of grain that they are carrying back, that they keep getting caught with, that they keep opening, they keep being checked and showing their guilt, and I think I think those bags of grain are symbolic for something bigger that's been going on for the past two plus decades of their lives. I told you that guilt was one of the main characters of this story because this character of guilt shows up in every single chapter. At every turn, when something bad happens, it's right there. This has caught up with us. Imagine carrying that dark of a secret For 22 years, for 22 years, think about how that would eat you up from the inside out. Imagine the fear as you wake up each morning that perhaps this is the day when everything is discovered, because think about it. One of the ways for this lie to be perpetuated is it requires an ongoing collective agreement from all ten brothers. And imagine what it would have been like when they finally decided to have some sort of funeral for Joseph and they had to comfort their father. This is not a one-time lie. Imagine what it would have been like if they had some sort of anniversary of the loss of Joseph each year and they had to relive those moments and remember him grasping for them again and again as as he's being roughly pulled away to be sold. I mean, this is not a one-time lie. This is a lie that you've got to find a way to perpetuate for literal decades. What does that do to a person? That's a heavy bag to carry through life. With a bag like that, what could possibly free them from the guilt when it all comes out? When they're discovered when Joseph discloses his identity to them, what can you do? What could you say? How could you fix it? What amount of groveling is going to repair this situation? Will any of those things be sufficient can you get those 22 years of lying back? There is only one path forward to find freedom from the burden of this guilt. The only thing that could free them from guilt was the power of forgiveness. So, as I said at the beginning of the sermon today, most of us are carrying some kind of baggage of guilt before God in one form or another. And you may not have sold your brother into slavery and perpetuated that lie for the past 22 years but when i said what would it be like to carry a secret what would it be like what would it be like to carry that kind of guilt with you for that long i bet some of you say i don't know what that feels like but i bet it feels pretty close to what i feel because you take that carry on with you everywhere and your guilt is constantly bumping in to every person you meet. It infects every transaction, every conversation, every moment as a husband or a wife or as a parent. It affects your life in every way. Or perhaps there's some secret that something in your past That you think if someone was to know that, it would destroy me. How can we be freed from the baggage of our guilt? You can't fix it. The sins that we have committed before God as we're thinking about the vertical relationship between us and Him and the guilt that we constantly feel before God, there is no amount of groveling before Him that will make it better. There is no amount of trying to go back and repair and fix to make it better. There is no way to demonstrate even through a lifetime of self-punishment There is no way to make it better. You're standing before God and he holds all the cards. He holds all the power. He can do absolutely with you whatever he pleases. And what path does God choose to free you? The only one available. Forgiveness. That doesn't make sense. Because forgiveness doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that Joseph would be able to stand before his brothers after all they've done and require nothing from them in return. And in doing so, he shows us a remarkable picture of something even greater. Because God frees you from that guilt that you carry through something that doesn't make sense. He doesn't say, I'll forgive you, but here's how you're going to have to pay. He simply absorbs the debt on himself. You see, forgiveness frees you like nothing else can. The gospel story is the greatest story of forgiveness ever told. And it doesn't make sense. But the Bible tells us that we have sinned against God in a way that cannot be undone. Which is not to say that you have done anything as bad as what Joseph and his brothers done, but simply to say that all of us stand before God as sinners, condemned by our sin. The Bible tells us that every single one of us is a sinner. We are not holy. We are guilty before God and we carry that guilt with us. We will never find freedom through trying to fix the problem on our own. That is the promise of false religion. Do these things and jump through these hoops, and God will accept you. Now, the only path to freedom from the guilt that we carry is forgiveness. And the Bible tells us that we have forgiveness through Christ in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7 when it says, In Him. We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses through the riches of His grace. I like the way the text puts it. The forgiveness of our trespasses through the riches of His grace. Those two phrases pair together to make sure that you don't make an exception and say, I'm not sure there's enough grace to cover my sin because there's a lot and there's even more you don't know about. And yet through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, we have forgiveness of our trespasses through the riches of His grace which He pours out on us even though we have betrayed Him. And this forgiveness that is offered in Christ not only frees us from the penalty of our sin, but did you know that the sacrifice of Christ was intended to free you from your guilt? The Bible says this in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 22. Let us draw near. With a true heart... In full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. What that means is that God does not forgive you, but then let 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 you walk on by and say, oh, you forgot something, your bag. You'll prove your sorrow and repentance for your sin through the rest of the life, your rest of your life, if you take that carry-on of guilt with you wherever you go. That'll prove to me you're sincere. Now the forgiveness of Christ says, All has been made right. Come, enter in to the blessings that I want to shower upon you and you can check your bags permanently here at the foot of the cross. You don't have to carry your guilt anymore. And we're going to share the Lord's Supper together in just a few moments. You're going to take in your hand the bread, which is Christ's body broken for you. You're going to take in your hand The cup, which is Christ's blood, shed for us. If the Lord's Supper is anything, it is a reminder every time we come to the table that we are partaking of a forgiveness that does not make sense. It's not something to be dissected, it is something to be received as a wonder.